the book of Romans is such a rich book. And we, in one sense, have spent a couple of three years on it already, but in, another sense, we've, in a sense, we've only scratched the surface or begun to scratch the surface on dealing with what, it, what Paul is talking about here. We come, we're still in Romans 8.28. We've been in that verse for several weeks now, and this will be our last foray into that verse, I think, until, uh, and then after the first of the year, we'll come back to Romans, and we will pick up in verse 29 and try to move on through this book a little quicker than we have been, perhaps. I don't know. But it's an important verse, and, and Pastor Todd set it up very well with the, with the uh, Advent candle, the Advent wreath, that, that during this season, we celebrate the coming of Christ and His coming showing the love of God that He shows us in sending His only begotten Son in order to die in our place, in order to be there. But the Scripture also talks about the fact that we love Him because He first loved us, but it means that our love is to be returned to Him. It's to be given back to Him. It's to be reflected back to Him. And in this passage, Paul talks about those who love God. All things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. And so we want to kind of talk about today, what are some of those tests, if you will, of, of love to God? How, how can you know that you love God? How can you know that you are, are, are really one of those that the Scripture calls a God lover? Not a God admirer, not a God fan, but a lover of God. Someone whose heart and passion and, and their whole life is set upon him and, and he is priority and he is important in their life above and beyond everything else. How can we know that? Well, the scripture gives us some indications of what some of those tests are. In your faith talk today, if you use that later with your children or even with your adults uh, to talk about it, it's interesting, Pastor Todd writes the faith talk each week and uh, he asked me what I'm going to be preaching on and he does the faith talk. And he, he put something in the beginning there that I didn't, uh, I didn't tell him about and I didn't think about. And when he sent me the, the copy to look at, I wrote back and I said, LOL, that's funny. I was going to start with talking about something very similar to that. He's talking about dogs and cats. I don't know, you've probably, maybe you've already read it or whatever, but said, you know, you think about how dogs and cats act in regard to their owners. A friend of mine several years ago wrote a book. Uh, he was a pastor of a neighboring church in Stone Mountain with me back in the 80s, and he wrote a book entitled Dog and Cat Theology. And I thought, that's a really weird title for a book. But after I read it, I thought, well, that's really quite a good title for a book. And his purpose was to say, basically what Pastor Todd is asking that question, have you ever thought about how dogs and cats respond differently to their owner, or if we could say it, to their Lord? Have you ever thought about that? You know, a cat is fairly aloof. A dog is fairly friendly. A dog will come when you call. A cat will look at you like, leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you unless it needs something, and then it will come to you and purr up against you and rub up against you and beg you for it until you do what it wants. A dog will jump around and, and start to say laugh. I, I think he's laughing. I'm not sure, but he'll dance around you and he'll do things, you know. And a cat will just kind of stretch out and say, serve me. There's a great difference. As a matter of fact, both a dog and a cat uh, look at this in a theological manner, I think. A dog looks at his owner and says, my owner, my Lord, my master is so good to me. He must be God. 
He is so good to me. He takes care of my needs. He feeds me. He takes me to the vet sometimes. When I'm sick, he, he just takes care of me. My owner must be God. A cat looks at his owner and says, my owner takes care of me. My owner feeds me. My owner does things I need. I must be God. There's a big difference in those two, don't you think? And I think sometimes we who profess to be believers, profess to be Christians, act either like a dog or a cat. If we look at God and say, He is so good to us, all things work together for good to those who love Him. We love Him so much. He is so good to us. He is God. But sometimes we think, you know, he's taking care of me. I'm getting my needs met. I must be really important to him. Maybe I'm God in this situation, and you're not. Paul says, I want you to understand all things work together for good. And Pastor Todd dealt with that several weeks ago, what working together for good means. It's not just that everything's jolly and everything's happy, but in the ultimate scheme of things, in the totality of things, God is working all things out for good, especially for us in the end when we are in His presence for all of eternity. All things work together for good to those who love God. That's the caveat. To those who are called according to His purpose. And it's being called according to His purpose that gives us that love for Him and lets us to respond to Him in love. So if we're going to talk about that, what are some tests to God, a test of love to God, that the Scriptures would give? I think the Scripture is very clear. The passage that Pastor uh, Todd read with the candle, the, pastor, uh, the, the passage that Pastor Michael read when he did the hearing of the Word, those all point to facts that, that this love is a relationship that goes on between us and our Lord because of what our Lord has done. But I, I think one of the things we will see throughout Scripture is that our love for God is best seen by the fruits of it. Our love to God, our love for God, is best seen by the fruits that that love produces in our lives and is seen throughout our life. Let me give you some examples. I've got 14. Uh, the last few I may run through, okay, if I spend too much time on these first ones. The first one is, and by the way, this is, this, I, I don't want to be accused of plagiarism here, so I want to be up front. This is based on a Puritan sermon, okay? That's why there's 14 points. It's a very short Puritan sermon, by the way. Uh, most of them are 35 points or whatever, but, but, but this is based on a sermon that, that uh, Thomas Watson preached in the 1600s, but I've made it my own, but I want you to know, so if you're reading Thomas Watson one day and say, wow, he copied Pastor Bill. He lived in 1600. It was the other way around. But he has some good points that I want you to see. Thomas Watson says this. He said, the first fruit of love is the musing of the mind upon God. The musing of the mind upon God. Musing is not a word that we typically use in our day and time, is it? We don't talk about musing about something, but we do talk about thinking about something. Setting our mind upon something, focusing on something, meditating on something. And, and that's what Watson means when he says, listen, I want you to understand that the first fruit is the mind that is set upon God. He who is in love, his thoughts are ever upon the object. 
If you're here this morning and you're engaged to somebody, I hope if you're here this morning and you're married to somebody, that many times your thoughts, no matter where you are, what you're doing, your thoughts go to that one that, are, that you love. You're, you're thinking about them. You're thinking what they're doing. You're thinking about how you can minister to them, how you can care for them. Your mind is always set upon the object of the one that you love. The psalmist said that in Psalm 139. When he said in verses 17 and 18, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. In other words, I went to sleep thinking about you, God, and I wake up and I'm thinking about you. You are ever with me. You are ever present. And I just want to think about your glory and think about your goodness and think about your work in my life every single day in every single way. I would ask the question, what are our thoughts most upon? What are our thoughts as 21st century Christians most upon? Is it about the economy? Is it about politics? Is it about who's going to win the presidential election or who's going to be impeached? Or who's going to, is our, are our thoughts primarily upon those things? Or are, primarily, are our thoughts primarily upon the true and the living God who has saved us and ri- helps us to rise above any of that at any time? All of that is temporal. All that will pass away. All that will be gone. But our God endures forever and reigns forever and is the source of our hope and the source of our strength. The one who loves God thinks upon Him. Has a, has a, has a delight to think about God. Contemplates Christ and His glory in all things at all times. How far are they away from God and from being lovers of God who scarcely even think of God? The psalmist again said in Psalm 10, 4, he said, In the pride of his face, talking about the wicked one, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. If you go out throughout the Psalms, you find the psalmist talking about, here's the one who does not love God. They say, how does the, how, how does the Most High know? How can God see? I will do what I want to do because I'm the, I'm the captain of my own destiny. I'm the one who rules my own life. I'm not thinking about God. I'm thinking about what I can get out of life. And the psalmist would say, that person is one who does not love God, but who has thoughts that are far away from God, who has no need for God, so they think. Second test of our love to God would be simply this. The next fruit of love is a desire for communion. A desire for communion. We talked about this some weeks ago about a a, a comparative word to communion is fellowship. A desire for fellowship with God and, and having a communion with Him that comes through the times when we take the Lord's Supper. It comes through the times when we celebrate baptism, the life of a new believer. It comes through the times when we gather in this worship place and lift our voices corporately together in worship and pray together, sing together, hear the Word together. All that is good. But what about a desire for communion that is apart from all those things? That is when you're all by yourself. When you're sitting alone at your house or driving along in your car, nobody's with you, nobody's there to point you to anything. You're just thinking. Do you have a desire to commune with Him there? The psalmist said in Psalm 84, 2, he said, My soul longs, yes, indeed, it faints 
for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I just want to commune with my Lord. I just want to feel His nearness. I want to sense His nearness no matter what, no matter where, no matter when. I just want to be there. I just want to be a part of it. If we love God, we prize His ordinances because these are where we meet with God. Again, the Lord's table, baptism, worship. But it can't be just then. Lovers cannot long be away from each other. There's a longing of the heart. You know, the the old saying, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And and there's a bit of truth to that, if things are right when you're together. But absence makes the heart grow fonder. There is a, lovers, those who love do not like to be separated from the one they love. They can bear just about anything as a Christian except knowing God's presence. In a daily, significant way. David said in Psalm 143, 7, he said, Hide not your face from me, lest I be like them and go down in the grave. Basically, David says, listen, if I can't experience this communion with you, if I can't experience this fellowship with you, I will die spiritually and maybe even physically. David says, I must commune with you. You have that desire. You have that passion in your own life that I just want to know Him. I just want to be with Him. Paul said in Philippians 3 again, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings. Do you just want to know Him? Another fruit, third fruit, is grief. The fruit of love is grief. You say, wait a minute, what in the world does that mean? That a fruit, the fruit of love is grief. Well, where there's no love to God, where, where there is love to God, there's a grieving for our sins and our unkindnesses against Him. There's grief when we sin against Him. Think about Peter in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 75. After Jesus has been going through all the trials and Peter standing outside warming himself by the fire and the little servant girl says, hey, you were one of them. And he said, no, I wasn't. I don't know anything about him. And he went on his way and but later, someone said, oh, no, no, you, you, are, you were with the Nazarene. We, we know that you were with him. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. And he went on his way. And a short time later, another said, oh, wait a minute. I know you were with him. And the scripture says he began to curse. And he said, I don't know the man. And then the cock crowed. And Peter remembered that Jesus had said, after, after, after Peter's great admon, admonition of the Lord, I'll not give up, I'll not fail you, I'll not let them get you, I'll stand with you to the bitter end, I don't care what happens. And Jesus said, before the cock crows tonight, you'll deny me three times. He said, I'm not going to do that. But the cock crowed. Matthew tells us Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly over his denial, over his sin. When Peter thought of how dearly 
Christ loved him, when he thought about how much that, that love had been shown for three years of caring for him and teaching him and leading him, it was just almost more than he could bear. That he should deny Christ after he had received such a unique love from him, it broke his heart with grief. And he went out and he wept bitterly. By this we can test our love for him. When we deny him, when we sin against him, do we shed tears of godly sorrow? Do we grieve over that? Or do we just say, oh, it's just a peccadillo. It's a little peccadillo, no big deal. God says it's a big deal. And we show our love to him by the grief that we experience when we fail him. Another fruit of love is boldness. Boldness. Love, love is fearless. He that loves God will stand up in his cause and, and be an advocate for him. Love gives us boldness. It gives us courage. It gives us the ability to, to stand when all the world is standing against us. Remember Peter and John when they were called before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful body that they could face, and they said to them, listen, you will not speak this name of Jesus ever again. You'll not talk about the way. You'll not talk about him as being God or the Messiah or anything. You will not even mention his name. Do you understand that? We will punish you. We will beat you. We will imprison you. And you may even go the route that he did. You may have to die. Do you understand this? They said, well, you do what you've got to do. But we cannot do anything but speak the things which we have seen and we have heard. This man changed our life. This man went to the cross for us. This man was raised from the dead for us. We saw him after his resurrection. We know the power of his Holy Spirit in our life. We cannot deny him. Peter had denied him three times before. Peter was firm that he would not do it again because this love gave him courage. I fear that the one who is afraid to own Christ, the one who is, who is afraid even during the Advent season to profess the goodness of Christ's coming, has but little love, if any, for him. Fifth mark, uh, the fifth fruit of love is sensitivityness, being sensitive. If we love God, our hearts ache for the dishonor done to God by wicked men. In Peter, 2 Peter 2, 7 through 10, Peter says, And if he rescued like righteous Lot, going back to Sodom and Gomorrah, if he rescued righteous Lot, and by the way, that's the only way we know that Lot was righteous. You certainly wouldn't know it by looking at his life back in the, in the Old Testament. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Lot was righteous and God, God rescued him because he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. I wonder if we are sensitive 
to the attacks upon our Lord in our culture. So we're not called to change the culture. We're not called to be culture warriors that go out with, with boycotts and go out with this and that. No, we're not called to do that. But we are called to be broken when we see God's name being defamed. And we're to, to stand for that. We're to, we're to speak truth into that, even though it may be difficult and even though it may hurt. There's a sensitiveness to God being attacked in those around us. The sixth fruit of love or test of love is, is hatred against sin. In, in Hosea chapter 14, verse 8, it says, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do anymore with idols? The one who has been saved and given new life in Jesus Christ is, is, is putting the idols to death, putting the idols away. Because sin strikes not only at God's honor, but it strikes at His being. Idols in our life deny the character and the being of God. And we're called to, be, we're called to hate the sin that we see around us. Now, that doesn't mean we hate people. But we cannot love, we cannot be indifferent to the sin that we see around us, the idols that we see around us. And we live in probably an idolatrous day that makes ancient Rome look pure. The idols may not be, have temples and they may not have statues, but they are nonetheless idols. Seventh test of love is crucifixion. He who's a lover of God is dead to the world. Pastor Michael read that in, in 1 John. He who is in Christ is not of the world, is not captivated by the world. Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, I am crucified to the world. The world is dead to me and I'm dead to the world because I live unto Christ. I just want to love Christ. The only way I can love Christ is by being crucified to the world. The next test or fruit of love is fear. Some would say, well, what does fear have to do with love? I thought perfect love cast out all fear. And there's a side of that 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 is true. But as Watson said in his sermon, he said that in, in the godly, those who are walking with Christ, in the godly, love and fear do kiss each other. I like that imagery. In, in the godly, love and fear do kiss each other. There's a fear of displeasing there's a fear of, of, of dishonoring. There's a fear of, of, of walking in a way that is what Paul said to the Ephesian Christians and the Philippian Christians and the Colossian Christians. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And that comes through a continuing love relationship with Christ. Ninth, if we are lovers of God... We, are, we love what He loves. We hate what He hates, sin, but we love what He loves. We love God's Word. We're in God's Word. God's Word is our source of meat and food and growth, and we, we meditate upon it, and we study it, and we read it, and we, we make it a part of our lives. If we love God, we love His Word, because this is where He speaks to us, folks. This is out of which He speaks to us. His speaking to us is not some kind of subjective feeling that we get. It's what has God said in His Word. We love His Word. 
We love God's day. And we're not Sabbatarians. We don't believe this is the Sabbath. This is the first day of the week. This is the Lord's day, though. It's His day. I, I don't think there's sin in, in walking more than, what is it, 150 paces from your house. As the one that was under the old covenant, if it was, none of us would be here today. But, but it is a day that's set apart for one thing, or two things, really. A day set apart for rest and for worship. It's not set apart for primarily worldly amusements. It's set apart for rest and for worship. We love God's day. I hate it when I can't be in worship. I hate it. The day is just not right on the Lord's day when I'm not gathering with my covenant family to, to lift up our voices together and worship our God together because He has commanded it when He said it through the writer of the book of Hebrews when He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't let other things come in your way. Loving what God loves, we love His laws and we love His reflection. Where are you going to see the reflection of God? You don't have to answer that, but you want you to think about it. Where are you going to see the reflection of God? Where are you going to see, if you will, a picture of God outside of the Word? Well, I think it comes when we love His image shining through His saints. When we love one another and share lives with one another. You know, we've talked about this so many times. Grace Baptist Church is so unique. We have a unique fellowship. We have a new, unique love for one another. We have a unique relationship with one another that is just so glorious. But we see the reflection of Christ through other saints that also love God and look to us to see that reflection and see that mirroring. We love a saint even if they're poor and can't give us anything back. We love the saint, though that saint may have many personal failings and weaknesses. We all do. We love the saints, though some, in some lesser things they differ from us. They're not just like us. They don't think just like us. Love them anyway. And we love the saints, though they be persecuted. One of the dangers that was warned about in the early church was that when persecution comes, you may not minister to and care for those who are being persecuted because you may fear that you might too be persecuted. But, but the Scripture is clear that we will love those who are persecuted. That's why annually and sometimes more than annually, we think about praying for and reflecting on the persecuted church around the world. Tenth. Another sign of love is to entertain good thoughts about God. Just to entertain good thoughts about God. Driving down the road and thinking, how good is our God? Singing that hymn, how great is our God? Just bursting forth in thanksgiving, thinking about His protection. Eleven, and i got to move very fast. Eleven, another fruit is obedience. Another fruit or test of love is obedience. 
in the difficult things, as in mortifying sin, as in forgiving one another. That's sometimes difficult, but Paul said to the Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. There's a forgiveness, that is an obedience matter. If you're harboring unforgiveness toward a saint, another brother or sister in Christ, then the Scripture says the work of the Holy Spirit will be hindered not only in your life, which it certainly will, but also in the body. Obedience, things that are difficult and things that are dangerous. God calls us to suffer for Him. Love caused Christ to suffer. Because He loved us, He gave Himself for us. When we love God, that love is reflected in love for one another. And we suffer for one another. We care for one another. We give to one another. There is obedience there. Twelfth, he who loves God will endeavor to make him glorious in the eyes of others. We'll seek to live it out so others will see it. Thirteen, another fruit of love is to long for his appearing. The second coming of Christ, his coming again. Oh, we could spend hours on that. We won't. But if you love Christ, if you love God, you long for his appearing. The final test of love is Love will make us stoop sometimes to the lowest offices just to minister. Remember, years and years ago, I preached a sermon at the church I was at in Alexander City, Alabama, first church out of seminary. And I said, you know what, the most, maybe the most spiritual thing you can do is, we didn't have a janitorial staff or anything, we just had some volunteers. I said, you know what, maybe the most spiritual thing you can do is, and they looked at me like, no, I'm sure they thought I was going to say preach or pray or or, you know, somehow do evangelism or go on the mission field. So, no, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go clean the toilets. What do you mean? When you love, you do whatever's necessary. When you love God, you say, God, how can I love you by expressing that in love to those around me? You see, for Paul in Romans 8, 28, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That love is not some kind of gushy, sentimentalism feeling, but it's action. It's action toward God that that manifests itself in action toward one another. So when Paul says, do you want to know if... If you're included in this, then test yourself and see if you do indeed love God. Or is it just, you're just a cat. Just think, he's good to you because you must be God. No, he's good to you because he is God. Pray with me.